Well, it's good to be back with you this morning as we open up God's Word. Last week, I, here we got a feast from the book of Genesis 22 from our brother John Joseph. I was able to listen to that sermon afterwards. What a rich uh, blessing it was to have that brother open up that wonderful chapter for us and point us to Jesus and kind of meditate on all the Lord has done for us in Christ. So last week, we started with the first book of the Bible. This week, the second week of January, we'll look at the first book of the New Testament as we turn our focus back to the book of Matthew. If you've been here for the last few years, you know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. It's 28 chapters, and each year, at the beginning of each year, we've taken a chapter, a chunk of that book, and worked chapter by chapter as we hope to finish that book. And we pray, Lord willing, that we will finish the book of Matthew this spring. It's a brief overview of the book of Matthew. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples named Matthew. It was written in the late 50s or early 60s BC in the first century. It was written to a largely Jewish audience. And so Matthew has all kinds of Old Testament allusions and prophecies and scriptures that are pointing to Jesus. And it's written to convince this largely Jewish audience that they need not keep waiting for their Messiah. But the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners, was right there among them in the person of Jesus Christ. It's meant to convince us that we need not wait for some other Savior, for some system to rescue us. It's meant to tell us that our Savior has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And Matthew calls all of us to look upon Jesus and to worship him. Amen. This book is a highly structured book. I wish we had time to dig in it, but our passage this morning is rather large, so I won't take a lot of time. But Matthew is basically centered around five sermons or five major discourses that Jesus gives. The famous Sermon on the Mount is the first sermon we see in the book of Matthew, verses in chapters 5 through 7. We see the second sermon in Matthew chapter 10 as Jesus preaches on gospel mission and gospel witness. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus preaches a parable about the kingdom of God, a whole chapter about parables that are pointing to what the kingdom of God is like. In chapter 18, Jesus preaches about the church, his new covenant people. And then the fifth sermon that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew talks about the future and the coming judgment. It's that last set of sermons, that last kind of chunk of scripture that we'll start with this morning as we open up Matthew chapter 24 and hear from Jesus Christ as he preaches to us. Right? So the best preacher we'll hear this morning is going to be Jesus. All right. And not me, right? All right. So if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. We'll hear Jesus talk to us from his word. Matthew chapter 24. This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 35 together. To read these one of the few Bibles, you can find it on page 829, one of the Bibles under your chairs. We read, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, a point, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? And truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. 
and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the upper room, in the rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from all the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Hmm. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Hmm. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Amen. 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 Uh, this is probably the most difficult passage in all of the book of Matthew. <laughs> one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. It's one of the most highly debated passages in the Bible. People have multiple interpretations of what this passage means as to the details of the events and of the timing of the events that are listed. I'm not going to take a bunch of time to, to list all the various views. We don't have enough time, but, but just broadly, some people think that this passage refers to, to things only in the past. Other people think that it 
primarily talks about things that are going on right now in the present. And still others think that this chapter, chapter 24, and the next chapter we'll look at, 25, refer only to things in the future. So which one is right? Well, I think it's a mixture of, of all three. Mm. I think this passage describes things past, mm -hmm. things present, and things still yet to come in the future. Uh, but they're all things meant to help us to be about the main thing. All right. To live soberly and faithfully to the Lord today. Amen. So here's what I think is the main point of Matthew 24, 1 through 35. The main point of our passage. Don't be distracted. Mm. Looking for signs of the end. Rather, persevere through persecution until the end. Amen. Don't be distracted looking for signs of the end. Rather, persevere through persecution until the end. As we walk through this tough passage, I can promise we will not answer every single question that you have. But I pray that, that as we look at this passage as a whole, and not kind of break the little pieces to, apart together, but as we look at it as, as a whole, that, that you get a better grasp of this passage and what it's doing. And as we study this passage, we'll hang our, our thoughts around four guideposts that will help us understand it better, I think. So four points to the sermon. Number one, the setting is important. We said that in verses 1 through 3, the setting is important. Number two, the commands are crucial. Mm. We see in this passage, the commands are crucial. We see that in verses 4 through 14. Number three, one of the things that will help us to understand this passage better is to see the prophecies have multiple fulfillments. Mm. The prophecies have multiple fulfillments. We said that in verses 15 through 31. And lastly, we can be assured from this passage, the end is coming. We see that in verses 32 through 34. So the setting is important. The commands are crucial. The prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And fourthly, the end is coming. Not the most homiletically nuanced outline, but I trust it will help us to clearly understand the passage. Number one, the setting is important. Notice the setting here as we read in verse one that Jesus left the temple and was going away. Jesus has been to the temple now for the better half of the last few chapters in the book of Matthew. To refresh your memories, where we are in the book now is in Jesus's final week, his last week on earth before his crucifixion. He's coming to the city of Jerusalem back in chapter 21, riding a cult in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. It's the time of the Passover, and so the city is crowded and filled with buzz. And here comes Jesus, looking like the king, looking like the Messiah, riding on the cart that Zechariah prophesied about. And when Jesus comes into the city, the first place he goes is the temple. The temple was the center of life for any Jew. The temple was what made Jews special. It was where the living God of all the universe promised to dwell in the midst of his people and meet with them there. Amen. Because people had polluted the temple. Mm -hmm. When Jesus comes into the temple in, in Matthew 21, he sees people there not worshiping, but working to make money. 
defrauding people, trying to get profit. So Jesus famously cleanses the temple, driving out all the money changers who turned the temple from a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Mm. And who done so under the guidance and under the supervision and under the approval of the religious leaders. Amen. Jesus later returns to the temple in chapter 21. And over the last few chapters in Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 21 and Matthew 22 and Matthew 23, Jesus is in the temple courtyard confronting these religious leaders who are at the root of the problem of the religious decay in the life of the Jews. Confronting these religious leaders who are the root problem of the rotten worship in the temple. Jesus confronts them and he calls them out. The entire chapter that we were last in in Matthew, chapter 23, is a picture of that. Where Jesus levies all these judgments, all these woes upon the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. And at the end of chapter 23, Jesus laments over the condition of the spiritual over the spiritual condition of the city and over the people of Jerusalem as a whole because they rejected the Lord and they rejected the Lord's Messiah. Mm. I mean, look at your Bibles at the, the last couple of verses in, in chapter 23 in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem! Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who went to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. And so Jesus says in chapter 23, verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. For you not see me again until you worship me rightly when I return. The house there in Matthew 23, 38 is a reference to the temple. But how is a temple left desolate? I mean, it would still be standing. It would still have all the regalia and all the accessories. It would still have all the beautiful arrangements in it. It would still have the altar and the showbread table. It would have all these religious symbols. But Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate. Mm. And then he leaves the house. Mm. Verse 1 of chapter 23, Jesus left the temple. If you're a keen reader of the Old Testament, you might notice here a vivid illustration of what was described in Ezekiel chapter 10 where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, portrayed as being carried out on a throne by cherubim. Well, here in Matthew 24, Jesus, the glorious son of God, the visible manifestation of the glory of God, Jesus leaves the temple. Amen. It's a striking judgment against the religious people of the day against the false worship of the day, against all false worship that sets himself up to be doing spiritual things but misses the religious and spiritual center. Mm. God himself and the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus walks away from the temple and leaves it abandoned. Friends, a temple without God is worthless. All right. Just like a church building without God is worthless. Amen. Just like a church body without God is worthless. Amen. So saints, whether or not we have this building or not, whether or not we exist as a body or not, whether or not we call ourselves Temple Hills Baptist Church or not is not what's most important. Amen. Amen. What is most important is are we worshiping the Lord and are we treasuring his son, Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. 
Jesus here leaves the temple. And while he's leaving it, the disciples come and point out to him all the buildings of the temple. The temple was a massive structure that King Herod had undertaken as his pet project to, to show his, his majesty. It was a huge structure, and it was a beautiful structure. I mean, in Mark's account of, of, of this story here, the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, here Jesus has just laid down an incredible act of judgment, and the disciples are gazing at the architecture. <laughs> Jesus, look at the marble. You see this craftsmanship? <laughs> it would be like pointing out the nice furniture in a house that's burning down. <laughs> Friends, how often are we blind to spiritual realities? How often do we have our eyes set on the wrong things? Saints, I hope we never become a church that cares more about the physical stuff than the spiritual stuff. I hope that at the beginning of a new year, your focus isn't on physical well-being more than spiritual well-being. You might have physical goals for your physical body to look better or to feel better, but I pray that you prioritize spiritual things. Amen. To that end, as amazing as it is when you read through the Gospels and you see the disciples so foolish, so missing the point, I hope it does encourage you that you can spiritually mature as a Christian. Amen. I mean, the same disciples who make so many off statements in the Gospels later write the epistles that are so filled with so many spiritual insights. Amen. I mean, one of the disciples here is, is Peter, who marvels at the stones of this physical building. But later in Peter's first letter, he points to a spiritual house. And marvels that it is made up of living stones being built up far better than these dead stones that are about to be torn down. Mm. Yeah. Jesus answers the disciples in verse 2. You, you see all these nice, beautiful buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that won't be thrown down. Jesus here is leaving a physical temple. And as he leaves, the disciples point him to look at a physical temple. And Jesus here predicts the destruction of a physical temple. And it's not some future physical temple later to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But it's the temple that they are right there talking about. Amen. The temple was supposed to represent the presence of God. But they rejected God. And here is the very person of God the Son, the true temple. The true center of worship, the true one condemning this building, saying, knock it down. Mm. Which leads to verse 3 is Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives, the mountain set that is opposite the temple. And the disciples come to him and ask, well, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I just notice here, there are two questions that are asked. That's important because sometimes people conflate the two. Or dismiss one of the questions and look at this passage of Matthew 24 and 25 as only pointing to the end of the age. But the first question the disciples ask is, when will these things be? Well, what are these things? What's the things that Jesus has just talked about? Amen. The destruction of this physical temple right before their eyes. 
so important was the temple in Jewish life, the disciples think that its destruction has to be tied to the coming consummation of Christ's kingdom at the end of the age. They have to be tied together. But Jesus shows them and us here that while one may allude to the other, the two are not the same. That the destruction of the temple and the end of the age do not come at the same time. And Jesus does not answer both of the questions in the same way. And we'll see that in the rest of our time as we look at Jesus' reply here in the rest of the passage. Which, which brings us to the second thing we see in this text is that the, the commands are crucial. The commands are crucial. And notice that Jesus responds to the disciples' two questions, not with two quick answers, mm. but with two whole chapters. Right. <laughs> and if you've got a red letter Bible, you see that pretty clearly that Jesus begins his response in verse 4 of chapter 24 and does not end until verse 46 of chapter 25. Friends, that's why I feel justified preaching our long sermons. Amen. Even Jesus was long-winded. All right. But for Jesus, unlike me, no words were wasted. Every single thing he says is meaning to teach us. Amen. And, and even how he begins his response is meant to teach us. He does not respond with concrete dates about events, but rather with commands about what not to do. Don't be overly concerned about dates, about events, about speculative signs. I mean, look at verse 5. Jesus commands, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And verse 6, you, you hear of wars and rumors of wars. But another command, see that you are not alarmed. Don't be shocked. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. Amen. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. But still, don't be alarmed. Amen. Verse 8, because these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The end is a ways away. This is just the start of hardships in life. But friends, these things mentioned are significant events. I mean, false messiahs. Spiritual imposters who deceive many is not a light thing. Worldwide wars and threats of wars is heavy. Famines and earthquakes by their very nature cause us concern. These are not little things. They are troubling events and troubling happenings. But Jesus here incredibly commands the disciples not to import more spiritual significance into major events than need be the case. Mm. Not to see all these things happening and be frazzled or too focused on the fact that the world is about to end. Jesus says, settle down. Mm. These things must take place, but they will be kind of normal occurrences. Mm. The end is not yet. Mm. You know, sometimes these verses are read and explained as primarily pertaining to us today, as signs of our times, as things we should look for as, as firm indicators that Jesus is coming back soon and sometimes so soon that people put a date on it. Mm. But we need to show some humility and some constraint as we read these passages and understand that they are not primarily about us. Mm. 
We are not the primary audience. We are the secondary audience. The primary audience was the original audience who heard Jesus speak, the 12 disciples. And beyond them, the initial recipients of this book, those who read it in the first century. And they witnessed all the things that Jesus spoke about. Amen. Now Jesus speaks about spiritual imposters to come in verse 5. Well, just read Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 10 and see the spiritual imposters in the form of the magicians, Simon and Elymas. Read 1 John chapter 2 verse 18 where the apostle John notes that many antichrists have already come Amen. in the first century. In the time that the apostles were living, in the time where this book of Matthew was written and was being circulated. Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of wars in verse 6. The international scene in the first century was full of military conflicts. There were wars in Caesarea and wars in Alexandria and wars in Damascus that killed tens of thousands of people. There was constant war and constant threat of war. Jesus speaks of famines and earthquakes in various places in verse 7. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, we read that the, the prophet Agabus stood up and foretold that there would be a great famine over all the world. And that this took place in the days of Claudius, in the first century. We know about the dramatic earthquake in Acts chapter 16 that freed Paul and Silas from prison. But that was just one of the many earthquakes recorded in the first century that wrecked Syria and Macedonia and other places in Asia Minor. In verses 9 through 14, Jesus goes on to highlight the many tribulations and the persecutions to come. How his disciples will be hated for his namesake. How they will be killed. How lawlessness would increase and love would decrease. But how they must endure. Mm. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end well, will be saved. And not only must they endure, but as they endure, they must evangelize. Amen. Don't just sit on your hands. No, speak for Jesus. Amen. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached Amen. throughout the whole world before the end comes. The disciples experienced the, the harsh reality of all that Jesus spoke about. Most of the apostles experienced terrible persecution for remaining faithful to Christ. Ten of the twelve apostles lost their lives for Jesus. One betrayed him, Judas, and the other one, while he didn't lose his life through being killed, was exiled, the apostle John. And in the midst of it all, they and their followers, other followers of Jesus Christ, in the first century, gave their lives to seeing that the gospel spread throughout the whole world as they knew it. Amen. So much so that the apostle Paul could write in the first century, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. Hmm. Jesus here in the final days, before he's cruci crucified and resurrected, before he ascends into heaven, is speaking to a people who would be living in between the time of his ascension and in between the time of his return. And he told them of all the things that would come in between that time period, all the things that they experienced. And he commanded them not to be distracted by them, 
Not to be overwhelmed by them. Not to be led astray or alarmed by them. And friends, Jesus is still speaking to a people living between the time of his ascension and the time of his return. He's still speaking to us who live in that time frame. And he's telling us of all the things that would come. All the things that we have seen and we have experienced. False teachers and wars and famines and natural disasters. And Jesus says, don't be overly concerned about trying to tie all these things into Jesus' imminent return. To try to figure out when it's going to be. You know, that thing matches with that thing. And so Jesus is coming on this day. No, Jesus says, don't be alarmed by them or anxious about them or too attracted to them. Or to invest in them. To enamored by these things. Jesus says, just, just leave. Endure. Be faithful. Evangelize. Amen. Friends, we need those commands, don't we? Amen. Amen. We need those commands. Because we are tempted to be too occupied with worldly affairs. With world events. And to spiritualize or sensationalize every event. The pandemic is proof that the world is about to end. The vaccine is the mark of the beast. Trump is the antichrist. The war in Ukraine or the growing tension between China and Taiwan are significant signposts of the coming destruction. The way Christians are being canceled in culture, being persecuted in America by being pressed out of so many spaces and losing influence is a sure sign of the end. Jesus is coming any day now. Mm. Many people who think and speak like that gain a following. And they and their followers sometimes exhibit an air of superiority. Mm. That they are the only ones who are truly discerning of the times. Mm. While everybody else is spiritually dull. But friends, we all need the same warnings as Jesus gave his followers 2,000 years ago. Don't be distracted by these things. Don't be drunk with drawing spiritual conclusions from every event. You are not that smart to make those connections. We are all in danger of being deceived. And many people who claim they are discerning of the times are deeply deceived. Because they keep trying to discern the times. Mm. Which Jesus tells us not to be so concerned with. All right. No. Rather that we are all living in the last days. Amen. However long that is. And while here on earth, we are called to endure all kinds of persecution and to make Christ known with our lips and with our lives. Saints, don't be sidetracked from your primary assignments. Don't let speculation about worldwide events so consume you that you forget to tell your neighbor next door about Jesus. Mm. You care so much about all this world things happening and must, you ain't even talk to your neighbor about the Lord Jesus. Mm. Don't focus so much on studying global conflicts and finding their spiritual end time significance. Rather, study your wife. Mm. Study your husband. All right. Study your kids, study your heart, and try to find the spiritual significance behind the conflicts in your home. Mm. Mm. The conflicts in our church. Mm. The conflicts at your job. That, that is to say, Jesus called you to a lot of other things. All right. Better things than focusing on trying to tie everything to the Lord's return. Hmm. 
Friends, don't mishear me here. I'm not saying don't care about the world. I'm not saying that things going on in the world don't have any spiritual importance or impact. Brother, I trust I'm saying what Jesus is saying. Don't give more weight to regular, normal activities than you ought. And in doing so, neglect the weightier matters of justice, mercy, love, faithfulness to what the Lord has called you to. The commands in this passage are crucial, teaching us not to be too attentive, not to be too attracted or distracted by spiritual signs. A third thing we see in this text that helps us to understand this meaning is that the prophecies have multiple fulfillments. Point number three, the prophecies have multiple fulfillments. That's often how prophecies in the scriptures work. There's an immediate fulfillment, and often one that, that points to a future or foreshadows a future or a greater fulfillment. I mean, you read through the book of Matthew, you can't get through the first few chapters before you see this kind of multiple fulfillment formula playing out over and over again. For instance, in, in Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born and, and Joseph took Jesus and, and uh, Mary to Egypt to escape from King Herod, Matthew notes this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. It's a quote from the book of Hosea. A quote that originally applied to the children of Israel, whom God called out of slavery in Egypt way back in Exodus, but they still had a future fulfillment in Jesus. It's one of the many prophecies in Scripture that have a double and sometimes a triple fulfillment. Right? Oftentimes, uh, commenters or theologians will refer to those things as, as like mountain peaks. Right? Where you look at it in a certain view, it looks like it's only one mountain. But as you get closer to it, you see, oh, this is like a, a range of mountains. From a distance, it's like one thing, right? Some of these prophecies in the Old Testament, it looks like they only have one fulfillment. But as you get closer, you see, oh, there's multiple fulfillments. You see that over and over in the scriptures. That's important for us here because in verse 15, Jesus calls to mind a specific prophecy from the book of Daniel that I think we see has multiple fulfillments. Starting in verse 15, Jesus explicitly answers the disciples' first question. When will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple that Jesus spoke about in verse 2 take place? Jesus says here, well, when these things happen. Verse 15, when, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And the one who is in the rooftop, not to go down to take what's in the house, and I don't want to know him. The abomination of desolation here that, that Jesus says was spoken of by Daniel is found in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11, where Daniel, writing in the 6th century B.C., tells of future forces who would come and profane the temple and set up an abomination that makes desolate. Many Jews, including those in Jesus' day, would have understood Daniel's prophecy to have been fulfilled already in 168 BC. So about 200 years before Jesus was speaking. In 168 BC, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes raided Jerusalem, killing more than 40,000 Jews, and he ransacked the temple. Then he did the unspeakable act 
of sacrificing a pig, the most unclean of all animals for a Jew, on the holy altar. And sprinkled the, the, the broth from that most unholy beast all over the holy temple grounds. And as if that was not enough, lastly, he put up an image of Zeus over the altar for all to see. This is your God. Oh, he made the holy altar and the holy temple an abomination. With Jesus here, speaking roughly 200 years after that abominable act, tells the disciples there's still a future fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. I think that's what he means there when, when he says, let the reader understand. Let the reader of Daniel understand that, that this prophecy isn't filled up already. There's a, a second fulfillment of it. There would be a future abomination that, that was to come in the disciples' lifetime. In this generation, as Jesus later says in verse 34. Remember, Jesus is addressing the disciples' specific question as to when the temple would be destroyed. And Jesus answers, when, when you see these things happen, when again, forces will come and ransack the holy city and profane the holy temple. Luke's account of Jesus' words here make that even clearer. In Luke chapter 21, verse 20, uh, Luke, uh, Luke records Jesus saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. These armies will be fierce and come with fury. So much so that Jesus tells his disciples that they are not to stay and fight, but rather flee. Look at verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one on the rooftop not go down to his house. Verse 19. Alas, or better, woe to the women who are pregnant or nursing infants in those days. Why? Well, it would make it incredibly difficult for them to flee quickly with babies in their bellies or by their sides. Verse 20, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Because roads in the winter would make it difficult to pass through because of the weather. And gates would be closed on the Sabbath, limiting and restricting travel. Pray that you don't have to flee during these times, Jesus says, because you do need to get out of there quickly. For things will be bad, worse than they have ever been. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Amen. Now, some people say here, this can't be talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, the language is too catastrophic. A great tribulation such as never occurred. That can't apply to the destruction of the temple. It has to apply to the end of the world. But we need to let the text constrain our interpretation here. Yeah. Yeah. Again, notice how geographically detailed and Jewish culture specific these verses are. Verse 15 talks about the prophet Daniel prophesying about abomination in the holy place. The, the temple, the Jewish temple. Verse 16 talks about those living in the region of Judea, fleeing. Verse 17 talks about those up on housetops, not coming down. It's a reference to the flat roofs that were a feature of many Jewish homes in the first century. I mean, think of in the book of Acts when we read that Peter was on the housetop praying. 
Verse 20 talks about the difficulty of traveling on the Sabbath, a day that the Jews in the first century fiercely observed and that would shut down all activity. I mean, think of what we saw already in Matthew. They don't even want Jesus to heal somebody on the Sabbath. You certainly ain't going to be running the streets on the Sabbath. All these things. And the fact that Jesus is answering the disciples' specific question about when the destruction of the temple would be lead us to conclude that Jesus is predicting a second fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that would happen in the first century, where all these cultural and geographic details would make total sense. And this ransacking and destruction of Jerusalem and abomination of the temple did happen in 70 AD when Roman forces led by the general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and then stormed into the city and totally decimated it and the temple. During the initial siege, things were so bad, food was so scarce, that mothers in Jerusalem resorted to eating their own children. And once the city was taken, Roman forces killed millions of Jews and enslaved over 100,000 others. One commentator notes, there have been greater numbers of deaths, 6 million in the Nazi death camps, an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population was so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. And this is not just one man's modern opinion. The Jewish historian Josephus, living in and writing in the first century, who was a witness of these things, said this of the war between the Romans and the Jews. It has been the greatest of all wars. Not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of all those that ever were heard of, Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. It sounds a lot like what Jesus predicted in verse 21, doesn't it? That this great tribulation would come with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would be such as was not been from the beginning of the world until now. Friends, what Jesus says will happen, will happen. Amen. Amen. But even in all this destruction, Jesus explains in verses 23 through 28, it doesn't point to a specific time for his return. And he warns again that people need to be on guard against false Christ and false prophets arising, offering some false hope. He says in verse 23, if someone says, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Or verse 26, if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, or he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Why? Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. In other words, Christ's return will not be some secret event that somebody offhand got to tell you about. All right. Right? It ain't going to be something that only a few people see, a, a few special folks. Mm. No, everyone will see it just as when the lightning falls on a dark sky, it's seen from the east mm. all the way to the west. Mm. 
Just as the, the presence of many vultures signals that there is a corpse around, so it will be evident when Christ returns, for all eyes will flock to him. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why would the Jews need Jesus' predictions here about the coming terrible destruction of the temple? Well, to prepare them. I mean, think about it. R roughly 40 years after Jesus' words here, the Roman forces came and laid waste to Jerusalem and the temple. But Jesus had told them that it was coming. Hmm. They were not to be totally caught off guard. It was an act of God's judgment, but there was grace. This was no sign of Rome's unlimited power. It was not some sign of history's unpredictable nature. Hmm. This was what the Lord said would happen. So that even in the midst of the tragedy, God's faithful people could trust him. Amen. And could trust that he cared for them. Amen. Jesus says in verse 22, that for the sake of the elect, mm. those days of judgment would be cut short. As intense as the trials of 70 AD were, as fierce as the fury of the Romans was, Jesus wanted his people to know the intensity of his love for them. Even in the midst of it. He would care for his own. He would care for his elect, who in a few short days after he said these words, he would shed his precious blood for. Amen. Do you think I would die for you, shed my precious blood for you, and then leave you when the Romans come shedding blood? I will not leave my elect. I care for my chosen. You are my children. You are my brothers. You are my friends. And I will always be with you. Amen. Trials and troubles, Jesus promises, would not last. There may be intense times of suffering, but they will be cut short, and then God will come and rescue his people. Amen. Amen. Friends, that's the same hope we have today. In, you know, verses 15 through 28 don't first and immediately apply to us. Again, I think the prophecies here were fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. But I think they still prefigure more and more intense suffering for all believers as we live in the last days, all awaiting Christ's return. An age marked generally by suffering and tribulation. But we too have Christ's word to comfort and to guide us. In intense persecution, we may be granted by God's grace space to flee, as Jesus instructed the Jews here to do as Paul sometimes did when he was persecuted. Mm -hmm. We don't always have to fight, friends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the best reaction is to flee and go be fruitful in some other land until the persecution comes there. Mm -hmm. You can't flee forever, but you can flee a little bit. <laughs> in intense persecution, we should flee fanciful and false claims about false Christ offering false hopes. All right. Jesus told us here in his word not to give in to such claims, not to believe them. Friends, stop believing everything you hear on podcasts or see on YouTube. When Jesus comes back, you'll know. All right. Amen. He tells us we can flee physically. We, we need to flee uh, false prophets and false hosts. But Jesus tells us here, we are not to flee from him. You can flee problems sometimes. You, you can flee false prophets. But one person you must not run away from. You must not flee is me. Amen. Because as hard and horrible as times may become, 
He will not flee from us, but is rather coming back for us to judge his enemies and to gather his people. He's promised as much. Look at verses 29 through 31. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I think the tribulation of those days in verse 29 here refers first and specifically to the days of the Jerusalem destruction, but again, as it has multiple fulfillments, I think more broadly to the time of tribulation of all believers in general living in this age as we wait for Christ to come back. After this age is over, there will be some great cosmological signs that will occur demonstrating that God is coming to act in judgment. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall. God will roll back creation. He'll make this thing new again, and his new people will live in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord. Amen. This world is not all there is. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, the same kind of imagery of the moon and the sun being darkened and the stars falling is used to describe God's judgment of Babylon. This phenomenal language figuratively is used to describe God's toppling of real nations. Amen. Again, his prophecies have multiple fulfillments. It could be here that they have a figurative meaning as well, applying to God's judgment of a real nation, of the nation of Jerusalem and of the city of Jerusalem and its temple. But ultimately, it refers to God's judgment on all those who, like, sadly, the Jewish people in the first century reject their king and whom God will judge in his son, Jesus Christ, the son of man when he comes to earth. Verse 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. It's perhaps better translated as, as a banner going before the Son of Man, proclaiming his victory in the heavens. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But now they see him coming on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory, and they know that their rejection was the wrong move. Oh my God, I, I rejected him as just a man. Now he's coming as the son of man that Daniel talked about in 713, riding on the clouds with all majesty and all power. I have made the wrong decision. Friends, don't you make the wrong decision. He ain't come yet. He's coming. Don't you be seeing him and be mourning. Brother, weep and mourn now for the Lord says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. You can have comfort today by coming to Jesus. Amen. Before it's too late. The Lord Jesus is coming back to judge, but he came first to save. Yes. You can know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior today if you turn from your sins and put Amen. your trust in this Christ, in the God-man who became a man, who lived fleshly, who died on the cross for us, and who rose again so that we might have eternal life. Amen. Friends, if you don't know Jesus today, don't play around. Don't play around this year. You've played around for so many years before. Don't make 2023 another year where you play around with the Lord. Because he's not playing around. He's going to come back. 
And you won't have any chance to reconsider. He's coming on the clouds to judge. And so before that day, give your life to Jesus. Amen. If you want to know more about what that looks like, talk to anyone around you. Come talk to me. We'd be happy to tell you what the Lord does to save sinners, how he does that, how he's done that in our life, and how we can help you know King Jesus as your Savior yes. and as your Lord. Amen. What great comfort it is. The day is coming where we hear that Jesus Christ will send his angels to gather his people. Yes. There will be a loud trumpet sound and they will gather his elect from the four winds from every part of the planet. Jesus Christ won't forget a single one of us. No matter where we are. No matter as insignificant as your family may make you feel for being a Christian. No matter how despised the little place we occupy here in Temple Hills might look to the rest of the respectable world, the Lord will come and he will consider you. All right. He will say, go gather him and her and him and her and him and her. And he won't miss a single person from all the four winds of the earth. Go get my people. He's going to gather all of us. God will come and redeem and rescue his people from all our troubles. Jesus promises it. And as we've seen throughout this book, throughout this passage, when God says something, it surely happens. What Jesus says will be fulfilled. So wait for him. Because the end is coming. Fourth and lastly, and more briefly, our fourth point, the end is coming. When? Nobody knows. We'll look at that again next week if we look at verse 36. But he is coming. Soon. That's Jesus' point in verse 32. Is he, he points to the leaves of a fig tree as indicating that the summer is near. Well, in the same way, he says in verse 33, when you see all these things that he's describing in this passage, when you see them coming, you know that he is near. For the original recipients, the, the he here probably refers to the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about in verse 15. The ruler would come and sack Jerusalem. I mean, notice Jesus says in verse 34 that these things he's talked about will certainly take place before this generation. The generation he's talking to face to face before this generation passes away. The end of Jerusalem and the temple as they knew it was very near. But again, more broadly, the fuller fulfillment for us, the tribulation and the deceptions and the persecutions that Jesus talks about foreshadows Jesus' soon return. He is near. There won't be another stage of redemptive history. The next epic, the next error in God's great unfolding plan for the world will be for his son to return. So as his people, we patiently wait for him. Not distracted by searching for signs, but rather persevering through persecutions, proclaiming Jesus Christ as King and Savior till the day where he peers through the clouds and comes to call us home. Saints, that day, that day is coming. So have hope. Have peace. Have joy, even as you endure trials of various kinds now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that gives life and light that unfolds our hearts and that reveals Jesus. Lord, help us to better understand your word, Lord. To make us better students of your word, Help us to better apply your word to our lives. Help us to prepare to see Jesus by living in a persevering way through the persecutions of today, by proclaiming King Jesus until he returns.
Oh, Lord, make us eager to do that work. And Lord, let us go through this life and all its troubles without fear, knowing that no matter what comes before us, that you will hold us fast. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.